Crack, and you're listening to Molly Huddle, Alicia Montano, and Roisin McGettigan-Dumas. We want to highlight the important topics, inspiring stories, and amazing women in sport. We're three Olympians from two countries, two moms, and one current pro coming together to talk about issues we're passionate about in the sports world. And we care about the current and future landscape of women's sports. And this is just how we're keeping track. Ro and I have a really interesting resource episode this week. We spoke with Dr. Holly Thorpe, a sports sociologist based out of the University of Waikato in New Zealand. We focus mostly on the socio-cultural pressures that contribute to the prevalence of low energy availability, LEA, and relative energy deficiency syndrome in sport, or RED-S. Why it impacts female endurance athletes, both elite and recreational, at such high rates, and how a big piece of having a long, healthy, and peak-performing athletic career is held in the overall health of the athlete and how widespread the effects of insufficient fueling are in the body, as well as how markers like menstruation indicate a healthy athlete, as well as the impact female athlete voices are having in today's media age. Thanks for keeping track. Hey, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Keeping Track. I'm here with Roisin, and we have a really cool resource episode for you this week. But first, uh, we'll do a little catch up on our lives. Um, Ro, can we start with you? How are things going so far in week question mark of COVID quarantine? Um, And Mother's Day is coming up. Um, Anything in the works on your end? Um, Lots of different things going on. Um, Good to chat with you, Molly. in the world of COVID-19, I, yeah, I don't really know what day it is or what month it is, but I do know Mother's Day is coming up. So happy Mother's Day to all the mamas out there. Um, and shout out to Shalane Flanagan for becoming a mother. Yes, exciting but, news. She just yeah. adopted, or I'm sure it's been in the works for a while, but their little yeah. boy, she announced that they adopted. That's awesome. Yeah, that's so cute. Um, and I've teamed up with a group of mother r- runners who have uh, businesses and we're doing a massive giveaway on Instagram. So if you follow Believe Training Journal, um, check out the giveaway. And I'm also doing um, another giveaway with JNA Racing. They have a virtual 5K coming up this weekend. So check them out too. They're a great organization down there in Virginia Beach. Um, so otherwise, yeah, life is going all right. Um, kind of staying busy, which is which is fun for me, and juggling the kids, and uh, you know, just staying inside with the the old family, um, and just kind of find the rhythm to that, um, and doing okay, thankfully, uh, despite the sad news and the <clears throat> everything else that's going on in the world. How about yeah. you, Molly? Yeah, same same here. Just stuck inside doing our duties. <laughs> yeah, but you got um, a new you got a new dog there now, so you're like a dog mom. So yeah, how's that? how's that's good. <laughs> that's been fun. We rescued little Rusty a couple weeks ago, and I've wanted a dog for a while, as people know. So this seemed like a good quiet time to kind of get used to the dog, have the dog get used to us, um, make staying at home easier. That's why a lot of people have adopted pets during this time. Yeah. So, yeah, he's awesome. One. Um, well, yeah. I follow him on Instagram. Oh, he's he has a new page. 
he has his own Instagram account. I'm thinking if things go south, we can just like live off Rusty's Instagram account. <laughs> He's going to be an, a pup influencer. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Molly, I've run with you for years and I do know you have a fear of dogs. How is your fear? How has this exposure therapy been <laughs> with Rusty? So it's been good. You know, he does kind of get crazy and unpredictable. Um, mostly my fear is like, distrust of owners that they will control the dog so I don't know how much it's helping like I still run by someone and I'm like are you gonna keep that dog from tripping me or no so it's more the human that it's you have the, the human issue. yeah okay yeah it's more the human but it does help me understand dogs a little more mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're enjoying it though yeah he's really cute he's fun um he's a good little distraction so yeah he will be a good buddy to have for the next however many years. <laughs> yeah. Um, a little bundle of joy there. Yes. <laughs> um, and we want to give a shout out to Alicia isn't here for this episode. Um, she'll be joining us on the next one. But Alicia's book recently came out. This is exciting. I can't wait to get my copy. Feel no, good. I made them my copy too. Yeah. Come on, copy. Feel uh, Feel Good Fitness is the name of the book, and I think you can buy it on Velo Press. It sounds like, which is also where you can buy Believe I Am Training Journal, among many places. Is that right? That's true. They, we do have <laughs> the same publisher, Velo Press, or Pocket Outdoor Media. I think they're on the same company. Um, and I cannot wait. I'm excited for Alicia. I want to give her a big shout out. Congratulations to her. It sounds like the perfect book for people at home um, and creative ways to stay fit and and just you know that girl is killing it after a year in the last year changing the game having another baby publishing a book yes. <laughs> she's unstoppable so I know I know and there's more too there's more more coming out always um, yeah. and I also want to give a quick shout out before we talk about our our episode to a podcast it's another um women's running podcast kind of new on the scene and it is strides forward with sheree louise turner um it's more her first season is more about the the ultra marathon world so she's talking about comrades marathon um and the women who have run that so um yeah give it a listen it's very professionally done great sound quality (laughs) great segues um so that's a cool podcast among the many uh, really great um, women's sports podcast out there. I should I should I should shout one out every week. I might start. Yeah, <laughs> we could even have like a little podcast club or like you know yeah. you know because I like to listen to a lot of podcasts too. Maybe not always running and um, some more like the mental health and stuff like that. So be happy to have a little you know favorite podcast of the week or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't have to be running related. I think that's a good idea. Yeah. So if you guys have any suggestions, podcasts we should see or listen to, um, yeah, always reach out and maybe leave a comment on our page. And we love hearing from you guys. So thanks again for any reviews and all of that. Feedback, we always welcome that. So thanks a million. Um, And let's talk a little bit about what we thought about this interview with Dr. Holly Thorpe um, of Waikato University in New Zealand. Is that right? Ro, what did you think? She is a sports sociologist, and I just found it so interesting and so relevant and so important for where we are now in the 
sports world, especially the women's sports world, especially the women's sports, uh, endurance sports world too. So Yeah, no, I really enjoyed speaking with Holly, learned a lot from her, um, Dr. Holly actually. And um, she she's such a great speaker as well. Like you guys will be very impressed by her, um, how, how articulate she is and informative she is. And um, I just loved kind of getting the zoomed out version of like what we're all experiencing, what me and you, Molly, probably have experienced on a personal level. Some of the stories we're hearing from the athletes we're interviewing. And um, Molly, uh, sorry, Dr. Holly is able to give us like a kind of zoomed out understanding of like the, you know, the wider scope of like these issues and I really enjoyed getting that perspective and bringing it out to you guys um again she was super on top of her game and it was it was great to hear you know how the evolution of women's sports I just keep calling it that because I you know we're just continually improving and, and continually getting better um and filling in these big black holes that just don't exist in research um, or just even, you know, um, exposure for women. And one thing that struck me at the end is she talked about media and how media have portrayed women in sport over the last, you know, 50 years or more and how we've gone from being ignored to um, what then trivialized to sexualized to what else was it? Oh, making sure that women were still women, even though they were... So women, oh, let's talk about her kids versus her accomplishments and things like that. Um, and now that this like social media world has given this woman kind of opportunity to kind of gain their own power in the media world. So I thought that was an interesting take on the role of social media and um, a cool, the cool progress we've made. Yeah, definitely. And we talked a lot, too, about um, sort of the the social pressures that contribute to the high rates of red S and low energy availability in female athletes. Um, and that we spent a lot of time on that because I think it's something that's been examined from a coaching issue and a nutrition is issue, um, but not as much from a social issue. And, and that is really interesting, you know, like she explained it like a fish not being able to see water the way female athletes in the endurance world don't see the pressures affecting them every day. And so mm -hmm. as a sociologist, I thought it was very fascinating just to, for her to shed light on that because, as she says, you'll hear, um, it's not a, a problem just unique to the woman. It's, you know, caused and directed by a lot of forces outside of her and a lot of women feel it. So I thought that was a really important point. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I think we were able to have a good discussion about that, how, you know, what is the solution? You know, is it the coach's fault? Is it the athlete's fault? Is it a personality thing? And is it a culture thing? Is it, and actually, you know, we realize it's actually all of those things, right? So how do we all kind of take a bit more responsibility, do our part to change the conversation, bring a healthier mindset, bring a healthier attitude? Um, and I just thought you did a great job explaining that. So everyone enjoy that. Let us know what you think. And um, we look forward to bringing more guests next week. We've got some more guests lined up and interviews ready to release. So um, yeah, everyone have a good week. And thank you for keeping track. Yes, here is Dr. Holly Thorpe.
Welcome back to Keeping Track. I am here with Roisin, and our guest today is Dr. Holly Thorpe. Uh, Holly is in New Zealand at the University of Waikato, and she is a sports sociologist. Um, Holly, could you tell us a little bit about some of your research and the areas that you have um, written about and spoken about? Yeah, sure. Hi, everyone. It's really nice to be here, and thanks so much for the invitation. Um, so yeah, as you said, Molly, I'm a sociologist. So a lot of people wonder what that is, really, um, in comparison to, say, a psychologist, which people might have more experience with in terms of people who look, um, or researchers who work more with the individual and what's going on in their, in their mind. Um, a sociologist, if we think about a camera lens, like a big camera lens, where we zoom in on the individual, that's typically more what a psychologist would do. And as a sociologist, what we typically do is zoom out with the big lens, zooming out to see a bigger picture. So the individual's not not there, right? The individual is there, but so are um, the, in the sporting context, so are the coaches, the teammates, the parents. We zoom back further and we see the some of the broader sort of social and cultural pressures on female athletes, some of those broader ideas and expectations around beauty, around femininity, around success. Um, and so as a sociologist, uh, my research is really interested in the individual as well as the those and the immediate sort of culture around them. And then also that those broader social forces and um, pressures that many athletes, female athletes in particular, sort of experience at quite the individual level. And obviously all of these things are intersecting, right? We can't separate them out. And what often happens with, um, with athletes is they feel like these are things that they are experiencing alone. And it's kind of like asking a fish about the water, right? It's all around them. So it's hard for them to kind of separate where these pressures and expectations are coming from. And often they'll say, oh, these, they're just coming from me. I, they're just they're my own pressures on myself. But actually, once they come to remove themselves from the sporting environment or they're removed through injury or whatever, they can kind of look back and go, there were a lot of pressures on me. There were a lot of expectations. They were coming from all these different places that it was hard for me to isolate or identify where they were coming from. It might have been, you know, overhearing a coach say something about another athlete's lost weight and therefore performing really well. Or it might be other teammates going, oh, look at her. She's just absolutely in form right now. Look at how much weight she's lost. Or it, so there's little subtle things. Or it might be in social media where they're seeing other um, types of bodies being celebrated and sort of given voice and being applauded for performance as well as, you know, what an athlete's body looks like, or maybe it's in the media. So often it's um, very hard for individual athletes when they're in that water, when they're immersed in these cultures, to see where all these different pressures are actually coming from. And they just feel like it's coming from themselves. And so they internalise that. And that often sort of amplifies the, the, the pressures and expectations that they feel, because they feel alone in that. But as a sociologist, I'm really interested in um, sort of how the individual is located within these broader cultures and within these broader social forces. And I think when we can pull back and see a bigger picture, it helps individual athletes and us as researchers and those in these industries trying to help athletes recognise it's not an individual thing. These are actually bigger issues that are not just affecting individual athletes, but actually happening within our sporting cultures in terms of what we value, um, what athletes, you know, are we really 
like some of my work's really kind of trying to advocate more sustainable sporting cultures that value female athletes' long-term health and well-being, not just their immediate performances. So like, actually, what do we value um, in our athletes? Do, we, do they feel like they're only valued when they're winning? Or do they actually feel valued as human beings who are striving and, and driving for elite and performance success? But actually, they're much more than that, right? And so sometimes in elite sporting cultures, athletes, coaches get into this kind of model where it's very immediate, kind of short-term goals, this, this event, this Olympics, this big run, this big race. But actually, if it's doing long-term damage to bones, to, to menstrual cycles, to other physiological functions, then yeah, we need to, I think we need to pull back and look at that sporting culture. And so that's where as a sociologist, long answer to a very easy question, I'm sorry, but as a sociologist, that's what I'm really interested in is pulling back to see a bigger picture here so that we can recognise these are not just individual athlete problems. These are uh, problems within sporting cultures. And this, I think that's why um, your uh, voice is so important on this topic because um, when we see something that is interrupting peak performance in female endurance athletes like Red S, it's gotten mm. a lot of coverage over the years, but it's from a nutritional standpoint or a medical standpoint, or we need to educate coaches. But I think mm. what we aren't doing is addressing why female athletes feel the pressure and where is the pressure coming from to treat their body in this way because there's obviously some kind of internal push too you know we've seen it in ourselves we've seen it in mm. other athletes and you know perhaps they know it's not good for their performance or their body or their long-term health but they do it anyway and so I think mm -hmm. the sociological aspect is going to explain kind of that we're we're in our own culture as an endurance sport and then outside mm. of that we're in a culture as females and outside of that we're in a culture as westerners or certain cultures um, have certain standards mm. of beauty. So I think it's just this ecosystem that you have the ability to look at and piece together and kind of explain like, where else is this coming from? And how can we um, arm female athletes against this kind of pressure? Yeah, it is like an ecosystem. You can kind of think about it a little bit like an onion, right? Where we have all these layers to peel back. But I think um, the sociologists although our, our voice is important and, and a valuable contribution, I do think it really needs to be in dialogue with the psychologists, with the nutritionists, with the endocrinologists, with the sports coaches, and most importantly, at the centre of that should be the athlete voice. And that's what has been really exciting to see is more and more female athletes speaking out lately, because that is exactly what we need. That is exactly in terms of awareness, um, bring, and these are hard things to talk about, right? They really, really are. So I applaud the athletes who are speaking out. And for us as a sociologist, um, athlete voices is really important in this whole picture, um, recognising that their lived experiences are a very important knowledge set. So in terms of my research, uh, I see sociology as kind of one part of a really complex kind of puzzle because red air is a complex health phenomena really it's got all these different components to it and what we've seen in the past and we, what we see a lot in the research is these kind of siloed approaches we have a nutritional perspective or an endocrinological perspective or the physiological or just looking at the bone health and we kind of separate it out um, but what I've been trying to do over the last six seven eight years is trying to bring those different disciplines together and so that's where my work um, in New Zealand with Dr. Stacey Sims and some of our um, nutritionists um, and sports doctors, we've had 
um, a long-term research project on different sporting cultures, so elite endurance female athletes, as well as elite rugby sevens players, and as well as um, elite female weightlifters. Where these sporting cultures, they're very different, right? Different ideas around body ideals, what types of bodies um, are the performing bodies, are the, are the ideal bodies, um, the different some of them much more individualistic, whereas others are team sports um, and therefore different expectations. But we've used the same methodology and sort of multi-methodology where we have the interviews with the athletes to get the psychology, to get the social context that they're experiencing, the athlete voices. Then we have the, the blood tests, the RMRs, the DEXA scans, um, the, the nutritional diaries. And when we bring those together, we get a much more complex kind of picture more holistic picture of what's going on for these athletes and within these sporting cultures so yeah the sociology is an important I think I want to emphasize it's just a, an important part um, but really the mission should be trying to to bring the disciplines together into dialogue into debate into discussion and at the center of this should I think always be athlete voice mm-hmm so it seems that, you know, with the athletes, more athletes speaking out about this and sharing mm-hmm. their experience, um, they are kind of starting to kind of erode that feeling of like, I'm the only one in this, right? And and people are starting to hear other, each other's story and go, wow, that's what happened to me. Or, you know, how does she have the same experience as me? And that's really starting to help people, I think, I hope. Um, and... But at the same time, we had then they're having this realization, wow, this isn't just my problem. And there's a sense that this is a cultural issue. And I think this is where, you know, your research really comes in. It's like, yeah, let's put like more data to that. Let's put more research to this. This is a bigger issue than in one individual. And that helps, you know, them really kind of move out of their oh, there's something wrong with me because this happened to me or this I'm weak because this happened to me or whatever um, the narrative is or has been. Um, mm. And now we're able to see, whoa, this is, <laughs> this is way bigger than me. And actually your research really comes into like, here's the proof, you know, because we're looking for that. Well, is it just me or is this really like a bigger issue? And, you know, I think this is where your research comes in and says, yeah, this is a bigger issue and that it isn't just your fault, you know, or you're weak or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's right. I mean, we've got to remember elite sporting cultures are really complex power environments right where if an athlete particularly if there's a team environment or there's team selection some athletes get chosen to be on that team or to perform on that team and others don't they don't want to let people in to know that they're struggling with things right so often that comes with all that silencing all the stigma that we've had for so long we've had it for decades actually so Mm. to see athletes Speaking out, it's, it's such a brave act, but it's so, so important for athletes around the world to go, this is not just me. And also, I think equally important in terms of breaking down that stigma is for, for coaches. Mm-hmm. 
and this is particularly hard for male coaches to have these conversations with their female athletes, particularly when it's young female athletes, how do they talk about menstruation, etc. But if there's more sort of groundswell where everyone's talking about it, they don't feel so ooh, icky, uncomfortable, those kinds of feelings that are, I understand why that's difficult. But if they see other male coaches, if they see this whole conversation coming up, hopefully we can start breaking down some of that stigma. So when young girls come into these sports, that conversation's right there on the table from the beginning before there's any problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also we can pull back and go, what are we valuing in these sporting cultures? And who's, um, you know, in that article in the conversation we were talking about toxic sport cultures. And this is kind of the extreme end of a continuum where you've got coaches or support structures or organisations um, communicating messages to female athletes that they're only really valuable if they're winning if they're performing and that weight loss is part of often part of that kind of performance um expectation uh so actually sometimes quite horrible things being said about bodies etc and then we've kind of got which is much more common is kind of sporting cultures where people aren't talking about it where it's much more kind of um Maybe not. Maybe bad things aren't being said about athletes' bodies. Maybe not extreme pressures being put on them to lose weight. But the athletes still kind of manifest that stuff in their own kind of ways because they're, they're hearing little things or they might. So it's. I think we're seeing that a lot more than we are at the toxic extreme end. But this other end where we're not talking about it, where there's still that stigma where athletes don't feel like they can speak out or say, look, I'm really struggling with something. Can I get the right support around me to to help me through this? And will there be a spot for me on the team once I've worked through this? Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that middle kind of section on that continuum is even more important. Like we've got the iceberg, right? At the tip of the iceberg is these extreme cases. But underneath that is many, many, many more athletes who are struggling in a less kind of extreme way. But these cultures might not be so extremely terrible. But actually by by coaches not knowing how to have these conversations, by athletes not feeling like they can speak about these issues or not feel like the right support structures are there, that's actually doing a lot, a lot of damage. Um, And quite a, quite a, um, widespread kind of way. I do think um, with the recent um, news story of Mary Kane's situation, um, which Mm. you're familiar with as an example of sort of an extreme case of toxic sports Mm. culture, that most of us don't have that environment. But Mm. I think part of why that story caught fire and resonated with so many female athletes or you know, not that red S is a female only problem, but it's very common Mm. in female athletes is because I think so many of us were like, you know what, this is a big problem. This is something mm. that we saw um, pieces of on our college teams, on our high school teams, we maybe dealt with for a phase of our career. Like this is just too common and is holding female athletes back. Like, I think we really need to dissect this and just put it in the open and talk about where these pressures are coming from, um, why it's not talked about, why it's not dealt with kind of earlier in female athletes' careers. So can we kind of zero in on the topic of, although it's not a female-only problem, why is it something that seems largely focused on female endurance athletes, um, amongst all athletes, if that's what you found um, looking at it? Yeah, no, I think the research for a long, long time, I mean, the early stuff on uh, female athlete triad back in the, the early 90s was really focusing in on those aesthetic sports, right? So sports like, or arts as well, like ballet or gymnastics or figure skating, where actually those female athletes have an aesthetic criteria, 
right? So it's actually how they look that involve like how they get mm-hmm. judged. So and their spins, like gymna- gymnasts, as soon as they get hips, etc., they start slowing down their rotations. Um, so often they were being encouraged not to go into puberty because that would basically end their careers. So there was a lot of the early research was on those kind of more aesthetic sports where there was an aesthetic component. But what we're definitely seeing, you know, since that early research is the high prevalence in these endurance sports where um, I think it's a very complicated picture on that. Um, Obviously, when there's a, you know, the less weight you're carrying, there often are ideas that that is, you know, leads to a better performance. But um, I think the psychology of it's, it's really much more complicated than I can probably get into here. And I haven't really got the answers. Um, you know, often in these endurance sports, athletes spend a lot of time on the road or running or cycling um, by themselves. There's a quite a um, cal- calculation that goes on that they understand very intimately and very well that fueling calculation, right? Where they can kind of recognize when they're just fueling enough or not quite fueling enough. And sometimes there's a um, quite a... Um, psychology of that constant fueling between just being on the cusp of just giving your body just enough what it needs or not quite but I can still do it anyway and then there's a kind of slippery slope and um, some of the athletes that I've interviewed talk about like a, this is the way the psychology and the physiology intersect and in a really interesting way I think we need more work on it is um, they talk about this the switch kind of getting flicked where there's suddenly they and they've gone back and forth on that switch but when the switch goes that's where this kind of spiral starts happening where it's hard to pull back and see like what's really going on. But some of these athletes are very good at controlling that edge. Um, And some of these athletes, these endurance uh, runners in particular, talked about um, it's very easy for athletes to run into trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So there's something, something very interesting in these endurance sports and the psychology of it. I think quite the, um, I mean, often in We've got chicken and egg, right? Like our particular psychologies attract your personalities attracted to particular sports, um, more introvert or more perfectionist, or I'm not going to get into all that. That's a really complicated argument. Or do these sporting cultures and the ways we train uh, therefore encourage particular ways of thinking about bodies, personalities, all of that? I mean, it's, it's complicated. Um, but but just on that, Holly, though, just like, just like on the psychological piece of it, it seems that to a certain point, and just because there's like a kind of uh, point here behind me yeah. in my room, that there's like this this kind of like reinforcement that goes on to a certain point that yeah. people do perform a little bit faster or they get, mm-hmm. you know, reinforced for that behavior. And then all of a sudden that behavior is destructive and they fall off that cliff. Right. So it makes sense that, you know, people are like, oh, I sense the edge is near. Right. And yeah. a lot of people talk about that, like you're saying. Um but it makes sense that why some people are like, well, I've got reinforced up to this point. Why wouldn't I keep, why would I hit a point of diminishing returns on that and crash down? Right. That's right. And this right. um, so is kind of that like innate, like learned human behavior. That's how we learn. We do something, we get reinforced. Oh, I'll do that yeah. again. And I'll do more of that. Right. And, and that's, um, you know, where we kind of had that sensitivity as athletes of like hypersensitive to your body, how it's feeling, what, you know, what it needs and to super kind of like neurotic really, right, Molly, that, that you just like, oh, like I feel like I eat too much or I eat too little or oh, no, whatever. It's like very sensitive. It's a very integral part of like high mm. performance. But, um, you know, that 
yeah, all of a sudden that reinforcement kind of falls off the cliff, especially a young athlete, right? Mm. They don't have the life experience or they might not have seen other people crash and burn, mm. that they are just loving this reinforcement and it's changing their life in some yeah. ways. Sometimes they're breaking through, sometimes they're getting scholarships, sometimes they're getting accolades, sometimes they're getting like, you know, this huge identity or power or sense of self. And that they mightn't have had before, and but unfortunately, they're doing it in an unhealthy way. Mm. Um, that you know, they don't see the future, they don't see the broader context, they're just seeing a very immediate like reward system go happen in here. Absolutely, I've definitely saw that in some of my early work where I was, um, it was with elite runners, long distance runners, and then with. Um, more recreational exercises who both of those groups self-identified as having had female athlete triad or LEA. Um, so that was the criteria for being involved in the project. And those elite athletes justified it to themselves much longer than those more recreational exercises who also experienced LEA, right? So they, they go to the gym a lot and they restrict their diet um, or they run a lot. That's just part of their routines. It's part of, they can't justify it in terms of winning, or a society doesn't see it as athlete, so that's kind of go. Well, you're kind of losing a lot of weight, or you know, they get the they get their accolade for so long, and then when it goes to a particular point where it's damaging their health, they can't have children, or their bones, or their you know all of that sort of stuff. They start going, "Ooh, am I doing something? Is something um, needing to be addressed here?" Whereas the athletes stayed in that state a lot longer because they are being applauded by elite sport world and also society in general they can pat it on the back regularly for being so disciplined for being such a strong you know being such a strong athlete for being um uh and as, as they lose weight and performances might go up for a little while they 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 really see that correlation right but actually the um we just had a it was towards the end of last year we had the sports medicine conference in New Zealand and we had a focus on female athlete health. Um, and there was a big debate that kind of broke out in the room around some of the, these long-standing ideas around losing, losing weight leads to performance. Mm. And that was, that was an elite coach who was saying that in the room and everyone was like, hold on a minute. This is the attitude that we need to like actually change more mm. widespread. Mm because it might be for short-term immediate like mm-hmm. performance gains mm-hmm. but long-term we mm. know all the the health and performance um effects of LEA that are mm-hmm. pretty what you know wide-ranging uh you know the psychological disturbances the gastrointestinal issues the cardiovascular function immunity if you're constantly getting colds um the you know stress fractures all the bone health stuff um, there's so many variables that can affect oh, Maria. Your, yeah, your, health, yeah. your health, your mental health, and your performances. That actually, we need to get past that idea that losing a little bit of weight might be the might be the turning point for your career. Actually, um, yeah. Do you think there's a resistance to like kind of um, people taking on that idea that well, let's not um that way doesn't equate to running faster like do you feel like there's so there's a like a whole group of coaches or generation of coaches or just uh, like a, a type of school of coach or what I don't know how you would generalize it but is there a kind of um is there a, like a mass of coaches that just resist this idea that to that weight doesn't correlate with performance 
Yeah, there does seem to be a lot of resistance to it. And I think you've um, hit the nail on the head in a very subtle way. There does seem to be quite a generational kind of um, knowledge set that this is what we know. We've seen this evidenced, but actually it's quite a short-term way of thinking about performance. I mean, if we're burning our athletes out where they're not making it past, you know, 25 years old or are they only in there for a couple of years and then they're done, I mean, that's not a sustainable model. And actually, who knows what those athletes could have really achieved if they'd been in a healthy, functioning state, not just physiologically, but but psychologically as well. In some Mm -hmm. of our more recent work, we've been doing interviews with um, coaches who are really taking a proactive and positive approach to this because we might say, oh, the coaches are part of the problem and they don't know enough and they're not having these conversations. But what we are seeing more and more is some athletes, I mean, some coaches who are educating themselves, really taking a really proactive approach to this, having the conversations with their athletes. And I was um, in one of these interviews speaking with an elite male coach of female um, Ironman athletes and and, uh, endurance runners. And he was like, I think this is the competitive advantage. I think if we get female athletes standing at the starting line who are menstruating, not menstruating, and are healthy, they're in a yeah. menstruating state. Mm-hmm. I think this is going to be the next, the next frontier in terms of female competitive performance advantage when they're healthy. Mm-hmm. And he's like, he's like really like if the athletes are working through issues, if they're, if they're not menstruating, he has those conversations. Yeah. He said, we work through that because otherwise you're constantly getting cold, you're constantly getting yeah. injured. You're going down all the time. You may not make that race that we're training and working so hard towards. He's like, what can we achieve with healthy female yeah. athletes? Yeah. And I think that is that is awesome. And it's particularly cool to see male coaches taking this on and educating yeah. themselves and seeing this as, you know, if we've got 100 female athletes <laughs> lined up at the beginning of a um, of an endurance race and we've got two who are in a healthy menstruating state, Let's see how. Let's see how long. Like, if we could track them over time, that could be. <laughs> yeah. That could but be. You, um, yeah, you major, know what? It's well, funny you're saying that because when this all kind of came out, this like idea that most a lot of athletes are in reds right molly there was this kind of like response from the elite running community in the united states especially female athletes there saying like with there this idea that you have to lose your period or stop your menstrual cycle to be a high performance athlete is absolutely not true mm-hmm. and actually the and the it was it was great i thought it was great because the female athletes i was lucky to be a part of an elite group and that included molly there that that was never something that was required in our group. Like everybody always, <laughs> some say TMI, but the, the, losing your period was was a sign of of, of overdoing it. And um, actually the majority, I don't think ever had an issue with that. And that was like, we always saw that. And the, this idea that, you know, that this is a normal thing or um, that it, it just kind of comes with the territory is kind of like not really true, right, mm-hmm. Molly? And it's, it's kind of revolutionary for a coach to come into the idea that, um, like the tagline of Stacey Sims' book, Roar, women are not small men. So to yeah. be coached, you know, not to have the same body fat or lean look as a male athlete would have to be your best yeah. athlete. That's not necessarily required in a woman and um, to kind of train them um, in accordance with maybe how their menstrual cycle is going and a way to maintain it. And, um, just kind of thinking along those lines is how to work with the uniqueness of female physiology rather than Mm. kind of deny that it's there or like train it away. Um, it's maybe the new way of harnessing female athletes power. So I think that's kind of the drum we're trying to beat where it's like, 
um, you know, performance, weight loss follows training. It's not the other way around. And you, mm. and, and you want your body to be that healthy, um, you know, balance, like you want to optimize things. And so that's, yeah. that's like a revolutionary way of thinking, um, yeah, strangely with female is. athletes. But if we can kind of get that to be the norm, I think that would be. And changing these messages, right? Changing the messages that are going out. And like we, like you said, and we were talking about before, like we do have this generation who are kind of set in these ideas around what will lead to performance. But actually we've got a new wave and it's very cool to see a new wave of female athletes, female scientists, um, scientists more broadly, male and female, um, really trying to like change these messages at their very top level and also finding lots of different platforms to have these conversations, platforms mm-hmm. like this. Um, because yeah, let's, let's think about food as fuel, right? Like eat like athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, not like a girl, or um, we have a New Zealand uh, uh, a working group with High Performance Sport New Zealand that's led by Dr. Bruce um, Hamilton and uh, Stacey Sims on there, and we have uh, lots of endocrinologists and nutritionists and psychologists, and I'm on there and um, scientists. And one of the big messages that we want to get out there uh, is menstruation is good. If, mm-hmm. if you're a, if you're an athlete and you're menstruating, that sh- that is like a performance advantage like change that message because we know all of the physiological benefits of that Mm -hmm. it gets really complicated when we've got um and a lot of the the sports doctors on our working group get really frustrated by often gps who recommend athletes go on oral contraceptives etc because then what we're getting is the masking of of the period the natural period which is actually a really important um clue of Mm -hmm. of physiological health so actually changing some of these messages and often athletes don't want to get their periods because it's inconvenient. They might use contraceptives or et cetera to get around it for, for big competitions, et cetera. But mm. actually we've got to change the messaging. And if you've got a healthy menstrual cycle, you're in a healthy state and actually that should be a performance game. We know there are performance advantage of that. And I'm, obviously I'm not an expert on that physiology of that. I am lucky enough to work with lots of people who are, but mm-hmm. I, as a sociologist, I'm very aware of the importance of changing these messages, of changing, um, of education, of bringing um, these things that have been silenced or stigmatized for so long, bringing them into the light. Let's have these conversations. Um, and then I think that's where real, real cultural change can start happening because um, hopefully we're going to see the next generation of female athletes come through and and go on to have radically longer, more successful careers because we're and, and happier and healthier at the end of it too and all the way through it rather than this kind of short term, you've got to go through hell, do everything for performance. Like why can't we be happy and healthy during that and come out the end also being able to have healthy bones, be able to run and dance and jump into our 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Like we're, there's going to be... Women want to keep moving our whole lives, but if we if we break our athletes at such young ages and we see this as these women age, I just don't think we can justify it, right? Like we need to create this cultural shift for yeah. the long-term health, well-being, and sustainability of, of women's sports. So I think it deserves a good shake-up and um, just to relook at what, what we're valuing and kinds of messaging that's coming from all these different sources. Mm-hmm. And it's also critical in endurance sports because it takes time to reach your peak performance. Even if you are only performance-minded and want the results, it takes 
a woman, uh, you know, into her early 30s to achieve peak performance. So Mm -hmm. we talk about there's this um, the high school national championship used to be called the Foot Locker Foot Locker Championship for cross country for high school kids. And there was something called a Foot Locker Curse because the the girl that won at age 18 never became the Olympian at age 30, you know, or age 25. She always something always happened as far as um, injuries or, you know, some kind of low energy availability related problem often cropped Mm. up. So um, we see that a lot. And it's just you have to be healthy for a lot of years to reach your potential. So even for that reason, it has to be sustainable (laughs) to get our athletes, our best athletes show talent at age 18, but we need to get them, you know, through to their adulthood. So that's Mm. That's yeah. important. And I'm curious, Holly, like with that, you know, so have that sense of this like high school, younger age group, right, who kind mm. of really kind of start to crystallize these ideas. It's quite, it's still even quite hard. Like Molly's a big star in America, influence, influential. But yet, uh, Molly, and you, we've had these conversations over the last few years where you've gone and talked to high schoolers, you've gone and talked to college girls about nutrition, but the importance of this stuff. And they are literally not listening to you. Right. And so I'm curious, like, you know, as someone as influential as Molly can't get through to these young girls who are like very obviously our brains at that adolescent age are very kind of immediate focus, short sighted. Mm. The idea of a 24 year old seems like ancient or whatever. Right. And um, mm. I'm curious what your research has found about how do we get, you know, um, how do we change those maybe unconscious beliefs or those kind of, um, you know, self-sabotaging beliefs that have already kind of formed at that younger age? Do you think it comes back to the coaches and the parents and the culture of the high school or team? Or is there other research shown that no more of like kind of Mali and influencers or like young, younger models um, can really communicate that or what is the best way to reach those young athletes who Molly you've done it I know you have we've had these conversations and they're like no I just need lettuce or whatever <laughs> and you're like no <laughs> right or whatever they come back with to you mm. and, and um, it's really hard to actually get through sometimes and people have kind of like oh this is what's worked for me and even though it might have only been a few months of a high or whatever they're not seen the cliff falling off the cliff yet and um, yeah how do we kind of how do we besides obviously I'm understanding it from a counseling perspective and I know how to help athletes in that way mm. but for for everybody else who's concerned right these you know kind of older influential um athletes who are kind of want to help the younger generation and not go through some of the things they might have gone through mm. or a parent who might be listening and can kind of communicate to their child or a coach who could be listening and can't really doesn't know how to like influence the culture and their team. Yeah, is there anything, you know, who who should be really I think you're asking the exact right questions. And these are the things that I've been trying to um I agree. It's so I mean I've done lots of sort of educational talks at high schools and trying to get the you know the messaging out there and and you do see them kind of glaze over because they're often um like you say, in quite an immediate short-term kind of focus. And I remember being 18 and not thinking like my knees are going to hurt when I'm 35, you know, like, <laughs> things like that, or that there's going to be long-term consequences because you're yeah. thinking so short-term. I, I do remember that psychology and that kind of life <laughs> age stage. So, um, but how do we get those messages across? And I think that is a really important question. I think, I do think 
athletes like Molly, athletes um, like Mary Kane, athletes in our nation, in our own national context as well, who those athletes might have seen at a track event or know, or you know, kind of know a bit more personally. Sometimes when the athletes who are in another country and they're on another still, it's hard to connect. So sometimes even our more local examples or national yeah. examples are really important. So those those young athletes can kind of, but even what we typically have is athletes on the other side of their careers who then speak out about them. If we can get athletes who are, and this is where I think the messaging is great if we can flip the story, rather than after a career, these things happen, these things are the things to worry and look out for. Um, we have an athlete in New Zealand, a track and field, uh, a young woman who spoke openly about her experiences with the support of her coach. She got a lot of media coverage and now she's on the comeback, right? Her story's not over and she's young. She's in her early 20s. And so now coaches and young athletes are watching her have this comeback and it's like she's stronger and better than ever, but there's been a documented journey. And so actually maybe if we can get even younger athletes, athletes who are in the middle of it, obviously when you're, when you're working through these issues, speaking about it publicly is incredibly difficult. Even speaking about it privately is very, very hard. To speak these issues makes them real, right? Um, and that is part of the challenge. But uh, we've been, we go back and forth and we bounce so many ideas around in New Zealand in our Whisper working group. We've, um, between Stacey and I and some of our colleagues, we've had three national symposiums, one every two years, um, where we bring together this, you know, all the different disciplines, as well as athletes, as well as coaches, we bring the different voices together, and often we have a, um, we try to make it free or very, very cheap, so that um, PE teachers can come along and bring their athletes, or coaches can, or a lot of parents bring their young athletes along, and if they're not the only one there sitting with their parent, if they've got their whole class or their whole team, um, that can actually help them not feel like, oh, this is an adult issue and I don't want to deal with this adult issue. But also um, a top uh, track female coach that I spoke with, what she's been doing, because she said this, she's had a lot of resistance from the male coaches. We don't need to talk about this. And she actually said um, what really worked well was having the young athletes, the girls, their own, like at, a, at a camp, the girls had their own time to talk about these issues. Mm -hmm. They carved mm. that kind of space out and they kind of led the conversation so they could have their phones out and flip back and forth. Between, oh, have you seen this website or have you heard this talk by Molly? Or, um, And when they start bouncing off each other and the parents and the experts, these adults kind of step back a little bit mm. and we create space for them to talk. They kind of take ownership of, of it. And she said they had to, you know, break for, break for the evening and the girls the next morning were like, can we do that again? <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So to think about how we create space for them to, to have mm -hmm. these conversations. Um, so it's less an individual problem and yeah. actually they hear each other talking about it. And But I do think influencers, I do think the athletes like Molly, like Mary Kane, et cetera, speaking out is so, so mm. important. That's a yeah. big, big, I think we're making um, huge progress because of that. That yeah. is, that's a good point, Ro, though, about how, like, maybe these kids need more peer interaction or just hear it peer-to-peer -peer at that age, um, because I even remember, remember coming to Providence and seeing um, New Zealand athlete Kim Smith. I don't know, Holly, if you know of Kim, but she's a, she, she was a really great example of, you know, fueling properly and, like, 
feeling well and Kim always ate you know you could see her sitting down and eating just like a big steak but I mountain of dinner yeah big mountain of food and um, I always it's, it's easy to look at that as as an athlete when I was coming in and just say well she's um a freak of nature or Kim's different or that's just her you know and it's like mm. if if there was that she was performing so much above me at that point if there was someone more on my level or you know as a high schooler you want to see someone more on your level maybe influencing you so that's a good point I think she's also in that sphere. Sorry, Holly. Sorry. She's also in that sphere of like she was a year or two uh, ahead of you. So you were watching her dominate the NCAA. And so that's very kind of relevant. Like that's hitting kind of what you want to do, kind of, you know, where you want to go. She's very kind of signposts for what you want to do. So her influence actually very positive. Do you feel like it was very positive? And your sense of, oh, this is what Mm -hmm. I need to do. I need to or I need to rest more, I need to train. Eventually, when I could bridge the gap and even just see myself becoming on the same trajectory as her, it was like, okay, she's doing this, she's feeling this way, she's doing Mm -hmm. these workouts, it's working. Um, It was really important to be just in the environment. And like not a lot of women have that environment to kind of like dive into. Like I dove into that healthy space and I feel like that's something we need to kind of create more of. did that contrast to your college experience? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. I think um, I was kind of like a leader on the team there. And so I was kind of just like in the weeds, like, oh, I'm just doing my own thing. I'm probably making mistakes here and there with my diet for sure. Um, and then kind of seeing that example paired with the performance, it was like really important. So mm. I think definitely, and I think that's really common on college teams. I think that's, again, back to why the Mary Kane story resonated through mm. many running communities was like, I know five girls on my college team that had eating disorders, you know, we, we see it um, just way too much. And so I think that's definitely an important thing to kind of change that culture. You made, you made such an interesting little point before, Molly, about seeing what, what um, Kim Smith was eating, right? Because there are these often these, these kinds of relationships with food are very individualized, right? And there's a lot of self-surveillance that goes on every morning, lunch, dinner, snack time, whatever, often athletes um, will internalize that. So it's a very um, close psychological intrinsic relationship with food and fueling. But viewing and seeing, there are often, you know, whether you're training with your team and you're away on a camp or you're at competitions and you're seeing what other athletes eat, their relationships with food, even comments around what other athletes might eat. I mean, that's definitely come through in my some of my interviews where some of these athletes would talk about being on camp and they're at the supermarket and someone pulls something off the shelf and they're like, oh, you're going to eat that. Or you know, all these kind of little comments. Mm-hmm. These are mm-hmm. little things, right? Yeah. They, build, they build up, build up, build up until athletes are like, I wonder where this has come from. It's come from little mm-hmm. comments, seeing little things, hearing little things. Again, this is the bigger culture. So athletes feel like it's themselves. This is my own individual problem. But it's, it is, you know, all these little things we see, we hear, we feel, we, um, they all kind of build up. And I think it's, it's, it makes it very hard for those athletes to see, like I said before, the, the, the fish in water, to see that water around them, to realize this is actually coming from so many different places, these kind of pressures, these kinds of expectations, these normalizations of what athletes should eat, not eat, um, what equals a performing body, what is an elite, what does an elite athlete look like in my sport? Um, can I challenge that by being more muscular, bigger, whatever? Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. 
So it just comes from everywhere so that it feels like it's just me and my own problem. And I think yeah. that's, that's where it, the, the tricky psychology of it, um, where athletes feel quite alone in it. But actually, I guess the, the, the important point is the visibility of those role models in our, in our more immediate circles who are eating healthily, who have healthy relationships with food and their bodies. And, um, you know, again, in some of our research in New Zealand, social media is playing a big part in that now because it's not just your immediate circle who you see eating or who you hear there. It's actually you're exposed to all these, these um, a lot of you know amazingly perfect bodies of perfect diets of, and so for young athletes in particular, that's a whole another level of pressure and expectation and these sort of value systems that I think we need to help our um, younger athletes find ways to navigate that space as well, the, the digital um, expectations and mm. pressures for elite athletes, because I think that's, again, the new, these next level pressures that, I don't know, I think some sports are talking about it, but when you talk to athletes, this is where they're feeling it now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I noticed it was interesting when you talked about um, low energy availability is the LEA for mm-hmm. that acronym, um, was... Uh, a similar risk for non-athletes as it was for elite athletes mm-hmm. when you were looking at um, women who were just exercising in the gym even. Mm-hmm. So we see it's not just elite athletes dealing with this. But my question, kind of I guess just for personal curiosity, is like is this specific to certain parts of the world? Because like the leaders in endurance running anyway are from, you know, African countries. And I, my understanding is that this isn't as big of a problem over there, but maybe I'm just not as tuned in. Is this like a Western thing? Is this a first world problem? Is this because standards of beauty are different or like have you looked at all into that side of it oh this is I think this is where we need to do a lot more research because our research has been um mostly done in the western and in North America and New Zealand and Australia and and England for example um no one has really been doing research with athletes from different cultures um or outside more western contexts and the project that we had we're looking at our female, um, our women's rugby sevens team. So that team is predominantly Māori, so at the, our indigenous uh, population in New Zealand, and Pacifica, so New Zealand Samoan or New Zealand Tongan. So in these cultures, there are different relationships with food, um, uh, d- different uh, sort of cultural understandings of menstruation. So in the interviews, that really struck us kind of in the face of like, whoa, there's a whole nother, not to say it's better or worse, but actually the research has not considered different cultures mm. um, and different ethnicities and how they make meaning of a healthy body, of a performing body, of loss of menstruation, like how that is made meaning of um like what different cultures have different ideas around menstruation too, right? And so in the research, it's been very Western dominated. And I think, um, I can't say it's not happening in other cultures. I just think we have not um, focused on that in our research. But I do think that's, um, even within America, for example, an incredibly multicultural society, um, most of the research happens in university athletes um often typically for a long time they've been um, male athletes but now when we're focusing on women athletes often they are young middle class white athletes so we do that's we need to do a lot more work in that space yeah yeah and holly on that point of you know um 
I'm curious like, how gender plays a role in, in this low in, um, energy availability kind mm-hmm. of syndrome or at REDS and things like that. I know it's, I know it is not uncommon in males, but is there, is, you know, does the research show that it is, it's primarily a women's issue or girl, young female athlete issue? Um, because the, the part of me is curious about the kind of socialization girls go through on a broader scale yeah. of, you know, losing touch with maybe their own body and what their body needs versus, oh, what my friend's doing. Oh, I'm going to just do that thing. Because I know that exists in a broader context, mm. right? Yeah. Um, that girls are more like, okay, well, we're all going over here. They're all eating here or they're all not eating here. <laughs> and mm. and um, I just know that from one, my, the work that I do, but also just like that this is a bigger issue for girls that they are kind of looking at each other um, for that kind of guidance versus looking, hey, I'm actually hungry or I'm full or whatever. Yeah. And does that create foods that are like ladylike and unladylike to eat? Like I, I wonder about that too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Versus like a guy's like, I'm hungry. Uh, like I, I feel hunger pains. I'm going to eat more. <laughs> versus, yeah. Oh well, if they're not eating, I'm not eating. And and this, the, then the disconnect starts to happen. Then they don't. They've kind of lost switch with what they yeah. actually need. I mean, women for hundreds of years have been taught from very young ages that they are valued for what they look like. We are shifting that, right? We're valued for our careers, we're valued for other contributions to society, for education. Um, That is is shifting, but still, little girls from, I mean, if if you hear about the the way we speak to little girls, oh, she's beautiful, or they they learn, like, what are they valued for? And it happens, and again, lots of different ways. But yeah, girls and women, we are taught from broader society that um, our appearance is a big part of how we're socially valued. Um, So that when we translate into a sporting context, female athletes have obviously all those performance expectations, but they also have all those expectations around um, femininity, what is success, what is beauty, etc. And that, again, has come from all these different places throughout Mm -hmm. their whole lives. So these athletes are really... Um, and but this is particularly hard in those sports where athletes um, want muscle, want bulk, want to be bigger, and then they're kind of torn in this kind of between what society says is is mm. femininity, often a very Western kind of quite heterosexual kind of context, um, versus what a high performance sport environment says, which is mm. strong. Um, lean um powerful in some of these sports so those athletes often have that you know quite that tension but i do think that's why we see lea and redis much more in our female athletes um because they have these these double worlds that they live in they live in these these sporting contexts which have these performance Mm -hmm. expectations around what the body should look like and then we have this broader context in terms of what women should look like Um, so those athletes have to navigate between those different worlds. And that is particularly hard for young girls yeah. um, who, um, you know, it's, it's hard to make sense of all these different pressures again. But um, as you say, LEA, Red S, more and more research is happening in, in terms of men's sport, particularly men's endurance sports. Um, with, uh, I have a, P- a PhD student who's coming to the end of her PhD, um, Katie Schofield, here in New Zealand has been working with our elite uh, track cyclists on both male and female athletes. And we're definitely seeing in some of these sports um, 
men are not fueling appropriately because they have these ideas that um, weight impacts performance. Mm. And mm. I actually think, though, in men's sport, the stigma is worse. I think it's even harder for them to be labelled as LEA or Red S because that's a woman's issue. So I actually think there's a whole lot more stigma in those mm. spaces mm. where men aren't supposed to have body image issues. But of course they do. And more and more we're seeing that in young boys, not even in sports, mm. because they are they are learning from society, from whether it's social media or mm-hmm. you know whether it was MTV 10 years ago or whatever. <laughs> They're actually learning, young boys are learning that that what they look like is is more important than it's ever been before. So, yeah, yeah, of course, we're seeing it more and more in our male athletes. have grown for them. Yeah, yeah. And you almost wonder in male endurance athletes if it's a little um, underdiagnosed, the low energy availability, because they don't have, like, the canary in the coal mine of a menstrual cycle to be, like, the first warning sign that they don't have uh, enough energy and enough fueling. So Exactly. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we've we've I mean we've interviewed quite a few um, Olympians and Olympic athletes, and just when you talk about the idea that um, athletes are focused on performance, and yet they also have to think about beauty. One of the stories that comes to mind, Molly, for me, is that um, is Dawn Harper. She won the Olympics. She was a surprise winner, and she got massively criticised from the media because she wasn't her hair wasn't all done nicely, etc. It, and that so it's like hard to kind of you know that we know that this is a kind of cultural pressure and stuff like that but it's very hard for an individual to kind of withstand the wrath of that mm. and um I wonder how do we you know how do we support our athletes to ignore that or shut that off it doesn't seem like it's even like a realistic expectation to be able to do that but how do we, yeah, I don't know, I suppose, how do we change media and culture? Well, that's, 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 <laughs> tell us, Polly, tell us. <laughs> you're right, you're right. So, um, you know, female athletes in the media for a long time, they were either marginalised, not, not noticed, all right, they were ignored for a long time, or when they were included, they were trivialised or they were sexualised, right? Mm. Now we're getting more and more sort of in this new moment where female athletes, when they're winning, uh, are getting more and more media coverage. Um, some of this is, is good. I think some media outlets, some journalists, some reporters are being are much more aware of how they speak about athletes, where they place value. Is she, you know, we still see examples of someone being introduced as someone's, someone famous as wife or um you know, putting them in the sort of um, reminding the viewers or the audience of her of her heterosexual status. She's got two children, or she's got this, mm. or um, mm. so. There's all these versions of um, the way the media tries to remind audiences that she's a woman too. Don't worry, she's an amazing athlete. She'd <laughs> kick your butt, but she's a woman too, right? Yeah. The, the media has done. That. But what has been very interesting to see is. Um, you know, we're seeing more female journalists pushing into that space, and typically they are doing a better job of representing female athletes. But we're also seeing, I said before about social media being this kind of thing to worry about, but actually what we're seeing is female athletes taking media into their own hands. So they're representing themselves in their own ways. And I I follow so many female athletes around the world. Some of them do a lot of those kind of things that mainstream media would have done to them in terms of sexualizing themselves, Mm -hmm. because that brings in audiences and viewers and therefore sponsorships and opportunities, et cetera. 
I'm not going to say that's bad or, or good. There's, they're, mm. they're doing that because they often don't get the funding in other parts of sport that they need to do that there, which is a systemic problem, not an individual problem in my mind. We also see athletes like Serena Williams, for example, mm. who shows us behind the scenes of her life, the struggles of being a, an athlete and a mother, the highs and the lows and all these other things going on behind the scenes and the things that make her angry or the, the injuries and the struggle through injuries. And as, a, as viewers, obviously, we know that's not real life. It's still kind of a, a choreographed performance of a particular mm-hmm. life. But we do see athletes kind of taking a little bit more control in terms of what they um, want to share with their audiences. And audiences do want to know the journeys of female athletes. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we see female athletes more and more having power mm. because they have huge followings. Some of them have yeah. huge followings. And sports organizations like the Olympics, et cetera, recognize like, wow, these athletes are doing it better than us in some cases. Like, we actually yeah. need to find ways to re think the sport media model so Mm. you know if we get our athletes talking more and more about you know relationships with food nutrition and dealing with some of the pressures and maybe that's maybe that's a um, way to start challenging some of those um, norms around what is valued in female athletes and so sort of taking control a little bit of the media narratives that have been around for a long time. Well, that's that's very much in the vein of why we started this podcast, right, Roisin? <laughs> and I have to give a yeah. shout out to our missing co-host, Alicia, who would have loved that topic. Um, that's part of why she wears the flower in her hair. Um, but one of the questions we like to ask gets to the root of that, of what would you like more people to know about your personal story, um, or even in your case, as a resource um, for female athletes out there, what other resources would you like people to know about um, in this particular area, or um, even pointing to um, research papers, any talks that you have done, um, we would just like to give you a chance to kind of like speak your story to people. My story, ooh. Um, I think, you know, a lot of us who are researching in this space, more and more, we've got a lot of female scientists, a lot of female researchers. We are passionate about this topic because we've experienced similar things. So I came to this topic before anyone in my field was talking about this, and I felt in New Zealand, I thought there were very few resources available for athletes because I'd been through something similar myself as a, um, a recreational runner, but obviously I'd had um, LEA for many years. And and so when I went looking for resources and I couldn't find them, um, that's when I set up with a colleague, uh, uh, Maria Bentley, we set up Fuel Aotearoa in New Zealand, which was a website, we've just taken it down recently, just that we didn't have the time to keep it updated, which was trying to provide resources to, to athletes, to, to coaches, to parents. Um, but now, um, working with the High Performance Sport New Zealand working group called Whisper, which is Healthy Women in Sport, a Performance Advantage, um, we've got our we have we'll have our website coming out um, very soon. We've been working together for a few years. We've just had a big national uh, nationwide survey across all of our elite female athletes. We've got some very interesting data sets coming out from that soon. Um, but that group, as I mentioned before, has got Stacey Sims in there, and I work with Stacey um, a lot. I have the <laughs> it's awesome actually to work with Stace, who's a scientist who gets the gets it, gets the struggle, gets the um, she is an athlete herself, and I would I would have a shout out to her TED talk, um, her book obviously, and um, 
yeah, I mean, I, I typically am publishing in academic journals, um, obviously speak around the world and things like that. But I think um, the science is really, really important and scientists who get the, the socio-cultural complexities of it is really, really important too. And I think that is, um, again, as I said before, bringing the different different voices together, the different disciplines together is really how we're going to, um, you know, understand the, the, the complexities of LEA for athletes because there's the physiology, the nutrition, the psychology, the broader socio-cultural stuff going on, and then it's different for every athlete, right? So that's where our research and our activism and our advocacy um you know, that's where I think we can make some real headway is when we talk to each other and we make sure our athletes' voices are always there. But, you know, a lot of these people who are working in this space as as researchers, um, as scientists, have they're coming from a place of lived experience. You know, they know the real challenges of this. These are incredibly smart women often who are like, this is powerful stuff. And mm. I spent many years trying to find my way, navigate my way through this path back to a healthy mm. space. And so the backstories for so many people out there, we don't, might not hear them, but there's a lot of passion um, and a lot of um, real deep care for our next generations of athletes in the terms of the science and the research that's happening. Yeah, wow. And it's amazing that you guys have had that, you know, this like a pain of forward nearly now, right, that you maybe didn't have the research for your yourselves. Um, but you're like, wow, I notice a hole here, I'm going to fill that hole. And I'm now providing it for the next. And like, what I'm hearing is there's a, there's a continual evolution happening here. And we're not done yet. Yeah, <laughs> right. Even just like when you kind of talk about the media and how going from ignored to trivialized to sexualized to making a womanly or whatever now it's like the women are taking like their own power back in that and and it's and like you said like everyone's taking note of that and mm. it seems like you guys are contributing to that and um thank you so much for your work and um if you want to share anything with us ever we'd love to have you back on and and um, because we we have also these lived experiences that it, to have the research to be like oh it's so validating that is exactly what happened or you know it just it really reinforces you know what we the, this kind of inner knowing or a sense of what's happening right or, or us trying to figure it out as well because you retired from sport I retired from sport but you don't stop kind of trying to answer those questions right so absolutely um, absolutely yeah. I think um I think it's so important the more science we're doing the, the more important it is to remember that athletes are human beings with voices, with lived experience, with huge knowledge sets there. And so for me, a big part of the research is to remind our sports scientists out there um, to always put these athletes as human beings at the centre of this and create space for their voices because we can take their bloods and we can measure your, look at your bones and we can break you down into all your different parts. But actually these athletes are human beings and we can learn a lot when we actually find ways to listen and make sure they're part of the dialogue. So that's a big part of, um, I guess, my contribution to the, yeah. to the conversation. Awesome. Yeah. Athlete centered or human centered, <laughs> which is something that's kind of common, right? That we talk about women are like, uh, well, there's a Alicia who is not on the call right now. She did had a massive kind of 
a revolutionary campaign last year to kind of this dream maternity where athletes weren't getting paid in during maternity leave and stuff mm. like that and her courage to share her story actually revolutionized the whole kind of industry standard now um and her kind of claim in that is that yeah we've talked about it a couple of times on on the podcast is that we're not these runners or these athletes and not just their performance they are women who want to have kids too and want to also have a career and be able to not you know go into poverty because they want to have a child and you know and they are humans and they have more to give and and yeah um, you and know, they've got powerful voices yeah, right yeah, yeah, and yeah. athletes for a long time were kind of silenced and told just to kind of you know, perform, right? You know, the whole idea that sport and politics don't mix and often society would kind of frown upon yeah. those athletes who would get political. That moment is, you know, it's often, it's still really hard, mm-hmm. but we're seeing more and more examples of athletes speaking out on political issues or sensitive topics or trying to challenge systems of, of oppression and inequality. And that is, I am so happy to be in this moment where we're seeing athletes confident, supporting each other, yeah. um, to speak out about because their voices are so powerful in our mm. society and that's where you know broader social change can actually come from so, mm-hmm. so I think it's brilliant to see athletes speaking out mm-hmm. yeah. and I think that's also why the work towards um kind of trying to pinpoint the cultural and social pressures of something like Red S is actually bigger than the little corner of sports performance that maybe some people see it as because it is kind of another way of like you know women actually literally physically blocking their own power, the power of their bodies with this behavior. And so um, mm-hmm. I think that's part of the importance of it and why it kind of gets under our skin as female athletes, even though it is a very broad issue other than just females. So thank you, Dr. Holly Thorpe. Um, it was so great to talk to you. Thanks for giving us this hour. We'll link to um, your TED Talk as well, even though it's on ah. action sports. <laughs> a very interesting introduction <laughs> into you. Um, and yes, we'll link to Stacey Sims' book and um, TED Talk for anyone interested in that particular issue. She's a great resource we hope to have on the podcast too. And um, yes, also link to your articles. So everyone, if you want more info on this, go to our uh, show notes. But huge thank you again to Dr. Holly Thorpe. Oh, thank you so much for having me. That was awesome. That was fun. Yeah. Great work. Keep thank you. Keep Major shout outs to What Cheer Writers Club Podcasting Studio, a nonprofit supporting Rhode Island's content creators and where Roshin and I record, and to Rudy Nakashima for our funky outro song. Thanks, guys. Running should be simple. Just put on your shoes and go. And yet, when you try to learn about how to get better at it, especially as you age, you're confronted with conflicting advice, complicated workouts, and confusing nutrition trends that just won't work for you. On The Planted Runner, I'll share exactly how to run faster, longer, and feel great doing it at any age because you don't have time to waste. 
I'm coach Claire Bartholik, and I went from not running at all in my late 30s to finishing a marathon in 2.58 at age 42, all on a plant-based diet. I've helped hundreds of runners achieve new personal records well into their 60s and even 70s with science-backed training, plant-based nutrition, and proven mental strength techniques. Each episode of The Planted Runner is like a private coaching session on the run where you'll learn from me and the guests I interview. You'll get actionable lessons to help you become a better runner every week and reach goals you never thought possible. Whether you're training for your first 5K or your 50th marathon, take along The Planted Runner on your next run. Let me show you how your best running is still ahead of you. 